So this morning, I'm going to ask you to start, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 17. That's Old Testament. It's towards the beginning. And then we're going to end up in actually 1 Peter chapter 2, but we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So last week, we finished a series called, What is the Gospel? And we talked about the, the bigger narrative of what God is doing. And so we walked through what that looks like for us individually now, what that looks like for our city. Um, we're kind of taking a break, a breather for between one series to the next, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, our identity in terms of who we are individually and understanding who Jesus is today. But next week, and then four weeks actually after that, I want to encourage you, um, I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to do four weeks on sexuality. Um, sexuality is a, is a massive topic and conversation and challenge within our culture and within the church. And one of the things we do not do well as Christians is we don't talk about sexuality. We are afraid of it. We, we have shame and guilt attached to it, embarrassment. And it is something that God has given to humanity and we don't know what to do with it. And so we're going to take four weeks. And so uh, I want to encourage you, especially if you have friends that you know that are navigating things in their life that are struggling here, I would encourage you to invite them to be a part of it because I believe God wants to bring some clarity and some freedom in this area because this is one of the biggest issues in our culture today and navigating that. And that'll start next week and go four weeks. But this morning, I just wanted to take a, a, a breather and take a moment to talk about something that's very important about how we live our lives in following Jesus. And sometimes it's something that we don't even consider a category. And that is understanding our identity. In terms of when you and I believe something is true about us or is supposed to be true about us, a certain state of mind, a certain kind of idea or a certain concept about who we are, that translates into how we make decisions in life. And that can be translated into positive decisions or negative decisions. It can be good decisions or bad decisions. But sometimes we don't realize where it comes from. It comes from this idea that either we know who we are or we're trying to be something that we're not. And the result is we end up making the right decision or the wrong decision. And so this morning I want us to take a look at 1 Samuel 17. Because I think what we don't understand is that the progression of our life, we, we walk through life not realizing that either self-imposed or imposed by other people, identities are placed on our life that are not true to who we are. But we start to believe that they are. And when we believe that they are, we start making decisions based on that. And then we find ourselves going down a road that we never thought we would go down in our lives. It's kind of like, anybody seen Toy Story 2? My favorite of the Toy Story you know, trilogy. So in that, in that really quick summary, so Woody discovers that he's not just Andy's cowboy doll. He's actually part of a collector set. He realizes that he's in this, he had a TV show and he has, he has, you know, Jesse and he has Bullseye the horse and he has the prospector and he's a part of this collector's item or collector's set that's going to go in this museum. And when he discovers that, he starts functioning differently than he did before. This thing called pride enters in, and all the toy friends that he had that were a part of Andy's collection kind of are not good enough because he's Woody as a part of Woody's Roundup. And if you've seen the movie, you kind of understand the concept. I know it's a kid's movie, but it's exactly what we do. And so what happens is he starts to alienate all of his friends, and he becomes isolated because of his own arrogance and his own confidence in himself because now he thinks he's really something. And then as you watch the movie, you get to just probably about, I don't know, 20 minutes, 15 minutes before the kind of the end and the climax of the movie. And he's thinking about what he's done and the decisions. And he turns over the bottom of his boot and he starts rubbing off the fresh paint to see the name that was written on the bottom of the sole of his boot, which is Andy. And he remembers in that moment who he belongs to. 
and it changes everything about his journey back into relationship with his friends. And I think sometimes that journey is exactly what we walk through, is that we start making decisions based on who we think we are, who people say that we are, but it isn't who we really are, and then we realize we end up where we didn't want to be. And then in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes along and reminds you and says, hey, whose name is written on your soul? Who shed his blood for you? Jesus did, and you belong to him, and that is your primary identity. So with that in mind this morning, I want to talk about uh, starting with David in, in the story that's probably familiar to most of us in John, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, which is, we're not going to read through the whole passage, but I want to take portions of it, because David is one person in the successful moments in his life, he knew exactly who he was. And that's why God used him the way he did. And so um, we're going to look at this to start with. So the, the first kind of like concept I want to deal with is who defines you or who do we let define us in our lives and from David's journey. So in 1 Samuel 17, kind of set up the, the story here. Israel's going to, to battle against the Philistines. And if you know the story, they have this huge guy named Goliath and he keeps coming out and mocking Israel and mocking God. And nobody knows what to do because he's huge and he's, he's intimidating and he's scary. And so they're kind of at a standstill. And every day this keeps going on and on and on. And David uh, comes along as kind of, he's the errand boy from his dad. He's sending uh, some supplies and food to his brothers. And so he's kind of the errand boy to bring that to his brothers who are standing on the battle line. And so he brings it to them. And the story begins to unfold that David arrives and realizes that Israel's at a standstill. They're not moving forward. They're not engaging Goliath. They're not acting as though they know who they are anymore, but David knows exactly who he is. And so from David's journey, I just want to highlight a couple of things that we need to understand really of what doesn't define us, but what we allow to define us. The first one is this, who defines you? Know this, you are not defined by your family. So in this story, we get to verses 14 and 15. So listen to what the scriptures say about David. David was the youngest, verse 14, the three eldest brothers or oldest brothers followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David is just the sheep herder and the errand boy. That's all that he is, and that's all that his family sees that he is. And we know that's true because the word youngest has been used, used a couple times to describe David, and it's a very specific Hebrew word. It's hakaton, which means doesn't just mean youngest in age. It means weakest or least. That was David's reputation in his family. In fact, when Samuel came to anoint David as king and, and Jesse, his dad, brought all of his brothers out before him and they finally got to the end of the row, at the end of the line, and Samuel says, don't you have any other sons? And don't you think that obviously if, if a prophet shows up to your house and says one of your sons is gonna be the king, you have all of your sons there? David wasn't there. Why? His dad even said, he said the least or the youngest. That was the, the identity in his family that his dad had given him because he was the youngest and he was considered the weakest in his family. And if you read, we'll read through the story further, but David didn't buy that. David didn't take that on. But how many times in our lives do we do that? Do we take on this mindset of what my parents say I am, what my family reputation is now becomes who I am in life? And you live under that weight of expectation or that shame for the failure in your family. And that becomes a part of the fabric of who you think you are. And when you do that, you begin to make decisions based on that. Kim and I had a close friend up in Oregon, and she was a wonderful young woman, but she, she could not get out of her mind that she was going crazy, even though she wasn't. Because she had come from a family that was filled with mental illness, 
Her mother had struggled with mental illness for years. She had become kind of, this young lady had become kind of the glue in her family to hold everything together. And when her mom would have a mental break, she would rally the troops and try to keep it, hold it all together. And the weight of that just on her and, and thinking through that this is kind of part of her lineage, she started to live in anxiety that she was gonna become exactly like her mom. Because her mom was crazy, and somebody else in their family was crazy, and their parents before that were crazy, and just go down the line. So she goes, I'm, I must have some, some deficiency in me, and I'm going to end up just like my mom. And it broke our heart. Every time we'd sit down with her, it's like you'd have to unprogram her mind because she wasn't insane. She was completely normal, but what was in her mind was, I'm going to be just like my mom. So she started living out her life in a reaction against that. And in reacting against that, she started to become like her mom, not because she was insane, but because she kept obsessing about not being like her mom. And how many times in our life do we try to outlive the lineage we have or we just give in to it? Can you imagine if David really believed what his dad said about him? You are the weakest. You are the youngest. You are the least. David wouldn't have done what he's about to do. David would have never been king. He wouldn't have been able to see himself in that. So the first thing you and I have to understand is our family does not define us. So it doesn't matter what family, and for some of us, you need to know your family doesn't define you, even if you come from a great family. That doesn't become the pride that you walk through in life and like, hey, look at me, I come from money, or I come from a great lineage, or I come from even a spiritual background. Because ultimately we'll talk about that Jesus is the one that defines us. Second thing of who defines you, you are not defined by your rivals or your enemies. So look, jumping to verse 28 in the story. So David shows up at the front line. He's getting kind of what's going on. He's getting the lowdown about Goliath and what's happening. And then we get to verse 28. It says, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men. So David's kind of gathering information about what's happening. It says, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave these few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. What a great older brother David had. Isn't that wonderful? What a great confidence boost. What's happening there? Eliab doesn't see David as his brother. He sees him as a rival. Because I think what's happening, and I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to read into this, is David shows up, the little sheep herder, as the errand boy, and the older brothers, along with Saul and Israel's army, has done nothing. And then David shows up, and he's asking questions like, guys, why haven't you done anything? Don't you know who we are? That God is working in us. We are Israel, and he's trying to remind them of this. And so his brother sees this and says, you're just a little sheep herder. In fact, you didn't even come out here to fight. You're so afraid. You came out here just to stand on the sidelines and watch us get slaughtered. So this is what he's saying to David. He's putting him down. Now, what if David started to believe that? Yeah, what am I doing here? Why am I, why am I even here? I, I really only good for tending sheep and, and taking supplies to my brothers. What, what am I doing here? He, you never see that dialogue with David, but you see it from his rival, which is his brother, which is, in this sense, becomes his enemy He's trying to deter David from what he really should be doing. Have you ever had that kind of person in your life that comes, becomes your competition or your rival or even sometimes becomes your enemy unintentionally and they say things to you that you don't want to believe is true but you start to think, is this really true? When I was in Bible college, I had a really close friend and 
one of the things when I went to Life uh, Pacific College, my dad was a professor there, so everybody knew who I was. And that could be an advantage, and it can be a great disadvantage. But my friend, as I got to know him, he was convinced, because my last name was Amstutz, that I basically had a free pass to do anything, and that when we graduated, I could get into any ministry assignment that I wanted just because of my name. And I remember I would sit with him, especially in our senior year, and you're going through like interview process at churches in different districts and all these kinds of things. And I remember every time I sat down with him, he kept saying the same thing to me. He was saying, listen, he goes, it's a lot harder for me. I have to earn the right to be in ministry. You just get it handed to you. And just kept saying that over and over and over again. And I started to think to myself, is that the only reason people are talking to me? Is that the only reason that they want to have a conversation with me? In fact, one, one time I sat down with one of our district supervisors. He's not a supervisor anymore who oversaw about 250 churches at the time. And this is what he said to me. He said, oh, you're an Amstutz? He goes, all you have to do is mention your name and every door will open for you. I'm like, I don't want to hear that. I could be a mass murderer. Just because my last name is Amstutz means the door opens for me? And I remember I struggled with that, but then I also watched my friend struggle with the identity that he gave himself. He carried a chip on his shoulder that he wasn't me, and because he wasn't me, it was going to be harder for him, and he pastored that way, and he led that way. And he was always trying to prove himself, and every time we talk, he always wanted to talk numbers about how big his church was. Sadly, today, he's no longer in ministry, because I think his ministry was about proving his ability, not being who God created him to be. And I finally, for myself, had to get over, regardless of what my last name was, that, that my primary identity wasn't in my dad and his reputation. My identity was in who Jesus says that I am, regardless of where I come from. So your rivals, they don't, they don't define you unless you allow them to. Third thing, you are not defined by your culture. The environment, the context you live in doesn't define who you are. So listen, as we go on to the story, verse 38 and 39. So Saul catches wind that David is crazy enough to think he could go out and take on Goliath. And so Saul pulls him in and says, well, I got to prepare this guy to go do what he's about to do. We are not out with some sheep in the middle of a pasture. We are on the battle lines in the middle of a war. So this guy needs to be prepared to fight. So it says in verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He, took, he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not, I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Can you just imagine how ridiculous David looked? Saul, from what we understand, was bigger than David, so he, but he gets Saul's armor. So it's like, it's like a little boy putting on his dad's clothes and stumbling around in them. Too big. And so... David just doesn't feel right. He just doesn't feel comfortable. But in Saul's mind, he's thinking, this guy has to be prepared to go out and fight a battle. So he needs to go out as a soldier. So he's preparing him as such. You're in the middle of a battlefield. You're in the middle of a war. What do you need to be? You need to be a soldier. That's what the context requires. That's what the environment demands. That's the culture that you're in. And we'll see in a moment, David understood something more than Saul understood. How many times in your life are you in an environment that says this is what you have to be in order to be accepted? This is what you have to be in order to be successful. This is what you have to do in order to be happy. And we start to believe this and we start to think this way and then we become or try to become what everybody else says we're supposed to be and not who God has called us to be. How many times does that happen? I, I realize that I'm really a one-sport person in terms of my athletic ability. I'm decent at basketball, 
Most other sports I kind of enjoy, but I'm not good at. And I've told the story before. I realized within the first season of playing baseball, baseball was not my game. But when I was growing up, every kid in my school and every kid in my neighborhood played baseball. Everyone. Even if they were horrible at it, they still played. And there was a reason. Because they wanted this stupid baseball hat. That's really what it was. And every time baseball season would come around, at school, every day, everybody would wear their hat from the team that they were on in the league that we were in, that was in our, in our area. And I remember that. And I remember for the first couple years when we moved to Van Nuys, I didn't have a hat because I didn't play baseball. And I felt like such an outsider. And I'd watch all my friends, and they'd talk about the games they were playing, and sometimes they would wear their jersey to school. And I just felt completely left out. So I thought to myself, I'm going to play baseball. So I went to tryouts, and it was horrible. <laughs> I didn't do very well, but they put me on a team. And then I think it was like the fourth game of the season. I was playing outfield, and you know when you're playing at that level, outfield is like almost off the field because they don't want you anywhere near the ball, right? And so I was playing left field, and some guy hit a line drive right between the third baseman and the shortstop, and it took one funny, funky hop right in front of me, bounced up in the outfield, hit me in the eye, and knocked me out cold. I don't remember the ball hitting me. I just remember waking up with six people standing around me and seeing blue sky above their head. That's all I remember. And I realized at that moment, I don't know if anybody in the history of baseball had ever been knocked out cold by a ground ball to the outfield. <laughs> I batted 175. That's pathetic. Yeah, I was bad. And I remember after that season, I thought, I'm not a baseball player. Even if the hat is really cool, I'm not a baseball player. I think sometimes we, we learn hard lessons about who we're not by trying and failing, but realizing I don't have to be what everybody else says I'm supposed to be. I can actually be who God created me to be and not worry about that. But then there's the fourth thing, and this is when ask, answering the question, who defines you? You are defined by God, period. No other qualifier, no other qualifications, no other category, no other identification is needed. You and I are ultimately, we are defined and identified by who God is and what God says is true about our lives. So listen to verses 30, 34 to 37 and then verse 40. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a, sh a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, it struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch in a shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. What in the world is David doing? He's not going out to fight Goliath as a soldier. What is he doing? He's going out to fight Goliath as a shepherd. Why is he doing that? Because at that stage of his life, what was David? He was a shepherd. And he even talks about how God had helped him to be the best shepherd he could be when God's spirit would give him the ability to fight off wild animals to save the sheep. And he's basically saying, different context, same thing. Goliath's just like one of them. If David goes out in Saul's armor, what happens? He gets slaughtered. Israel gets slaughtered. But he goes out as what? Shepherd. Or goes out as what is his identity at that point? And what God said is true. David, you're a shepherd. And so what does he do? He defeats Goliath with, with not a sword and not with armor, not with a bow and arrow or a spear, but with what? With stones and a slingshot, which is what he did when he was tending sheep. That 
such a powerful image to realize God said this is true of who you are, David, so go be yourself. The same thing is true for our lives, that God says to us, be who I created you to be. Be nothing more and nothing less and see what I'll do in your life. Oh, we struggle with that. How many times do we find ourselves in situations where we end up trying to be something or somebody that we're not? And then what happens is we get mad at people and we get mad at God and say, God, why did you do this to me? And God says, I didn't do anything to you. You got confused into believing something that wasn't true about yourself. So I want us to fast forward or jump forward into the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 2 because I think this passage is one verse kind of moving forward, understanding. So after David's understanding, and you know the journey of David, he becomes king, and obviously he makes some mistakes along the way, but God still uses him because he knows who he is. And you go through all of the Old Testament, you get to the New Testament, then we have the pinnacle of Jesus coming, his death and his resurrection. And now because of his death and resurrection, we have this amazing new identity in who he is. And Peter defines for us what that identity looks like in 1 Peter chapter 2, in one simple verse, I want to just talk about four things real quick that help you and I to understand who we are. This is, regardless of the specific things God calls us to do in life, this is all of the of primary identity that all of us have in who Jesus says that we are. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter's just previously has talked about this image of, of calling Jesus a cornerstone, which is the, the kind of the key building point of the foundation of a building, which everything gets built upon. And he's saying those who embrace Jesus as the cornerstone find themselves in this identity. Those who don't embrace Jesus as the cornerstone don't find themselves living out this identity. So when you embrace Jesus as the foundation and the core of who you are, this is who he says that you are. So he starts off, and I just want to walk through these, these four things. You are chosen by God. We are chosen people. We're not the leftovers. We're not the last one on the playground, and just by default, you have to get picked because there's nobody left. Anybody remember what that was like? If, can you remember what it was like when you're on the playground and, and you go to pick teams and if you're the, let's just take it from the other side. So you're the team captain and you get to pick teams. How do you go about picking teams? You start sizing people up on their athletic ability according to the sport you're playing, correct? So the best players go first. That's who you pick. And so then you have a pecking order from there and it goes down in the ability until you know there's the last kid that nobody wants. But if you have the last pick, you get stuck with him, right? Now, if you and I are in that, that situation, and we apply that, what happens is if we apply it to ourselves, we don't even make our own list. We would, if we were the one in charge, if we were God and we were picking teams, if we were playing that role, many of us, we look at our own life and think, oh, we're going to be the last one that gets picked by default. But there isn't a pecking order in the kingdom of God. There isn't a better and best or less. It's, it's all equal. So when we're on the playground with God, guess what? His first pick is all of us. He can do that. He's God. He doesn't have to go in any order. He just picks all of us equally. That's his choice. But see, in our minds, we get stuck in this. We look around and we try to figure out who's good, who's better, who's best. And God doesn't look at us that way. He says, no, I chose you. And not because you did anything spectacular. 
so that you can take credit at it, or not because somehow you're weak so that you can be pitied by it, but because I chose you because I chose to choose you. That's God's love. Now, when you and I think seriously about our own lives, that is a crazy choice because I know myself, and I wouldn't even pick me. God picked me. I'm chosen. When you go through your life and think about this, it's the same. There is some correlation there. I remember when I was playing, it was actually at a Life Pacific retreat, and I wasn't even going to the college. I would go to the retreats because my dad was teaching, and I think I was like 14 or 15, and there was a pickup basketball game, and I remember they were picking teams. I'm like, yeah, who's going to pick the 15-year-old, right? Except one of the team captains was one of my friends, and he was somebody who was a mentor in my life, and guess who he picked first? He picked the 15-year-old. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I want you on my team. And then he picked good players after that. (laughs) And I remember thinking, I don't care if we win or lose. He picked me first. Just the feeling of playing that game, I remember just feeling like so good about myself. Even if I missed the shot or I threw the ball out of bounds or I fouled somebody, I felt so good about the game. I don't even know who won. All I cared about is that he picked me first. Anybody relate to that? That's what God does. And if you and I live our lives knowing that he made the choice, that means that he has ultimate value in us. And if he has value in us, then you and I should have some value for ourselves because he made that choice in our life. Second thing that Peter says, that we are adopted by God, and he uses this phrase that you are royal, and he uses two, two phrases, royal priesthood. What is royalty? This is really impo- very important. Jesus is, in fact, we, in fact, we sang about it today, he is the only king forever. He is royalty He is the king of all. He's the king of the universe. And so he comes down and he has the rightful place as king over our lives. But here's the crazy thing. When Peter says you're royalty, what he's saying is you are are part of God's family. And because you are a son or a daughter of the king, you are royalty. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are joint heirs with Jesus. We're in the royal family. Listen to Romans chapter 8 verses 14 through 17. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you, you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought you out of or brought your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. You and I are royal. Just think about that. Not only does he save us from our sin and give us new life, he says, welcome to the royal family. Welcome to the privilege of what that looks like. Welcome to the resource of that, to be at that level, not because we deserve it, but because he loved us enough to welcome us in. But the beautiful part of that is he didn't do that so you and I could say, wow, look at me, I'm royal. I'm privileged. No, he says you are a royal priesthood. This is what's crazy. That second term means that God not only welcomes you into his family as a joint heir, a co-heir with Jesus, but now he says this, you're supposed to be in the process of helping people be adopted into my family because you are a royal priest. And what did a priest represent, especially in the Old Testament? The priest represented people's connection to God. And he says, now you're a royal priesthood, which means you're a royal priest. You are part of the family, and now one of your responsibilities is to help 
others be adopted into this family so that they are joint heirs as well. Isn't that crazy? That is just amazing. That means the way we live our life is we live our life with our eyes wide open to the people around us who have yet to experience the sonship that Paul was talking about in Romans, the adoption process of coming into God's family. And you and I are surrounded with them all the time. There's people everywhere who have yet to experience that. And just to think about that in our lives, Kim and I did something that we've never done in our entire lives yesterday. We're really crazy. I know this is gonna, you're going to think, wow, you don't get out much. So Courtney and Jordan are up at camp, so we had the day yesterday. We're like, what do we want to do? And so we were getting stuff done, and we had driven out uh, in the area around Santa Anita Racetrack a number of times but never gone there. So let's go to the track. You're like, uh-oh, what's Pastor Don doing? Yeah, there was a horse in the fifth race that I really wanted to no, know. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we just thought... I've never been into Santa Anita. I like to go, and so we did. It's five bucks to get in. It's like, psh, that's cheap. So it's beautiful. Anybody been there? You can raise your hand. It's like, I didn't, well, see, good. I, I, we don't get out much. Maybe I'm just waking up to the reality of what's going on. Never been to a racetrack, never bet on a horse, didn't bet on a horse yesterday, but just thought, we want to just see what this is like. So we're just walking around the grounds, and you, you, know, you watch, the, they bring the horses out, and they race about every 30 minutes. It's just really cool. But we sat in some, some bleachers, which are the cheap seats on, in the infield, and it was just amazing to look at the people around us. There were people, people from every walk of life at that track. Every ethnicity, every economic level, you would not believe the people. I mean, we were encountering all these people. I'm like, this is crazy. This is a whole nother world. And the great thing is, is because you're, you're, you're dumb and stupid because you don't know what you're doing, everybody will talk to you. Because you're not giving them, like, so I literally scooted over to a couple of this one group of people. They were kind of hanging out. I'm like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. How does this work? And so they started explaining. I said, tell me what the, what the odds is. Why are they changing? You know, what, what happens when you bet, you know, win and place and show and all this stuff. And they started explaining this all to me. And, and then it was just amazing. You're getting to know these people. And I'm looking around. I'm thinking, these are all people that probably need Jesus. <laughs> no, and it's not because they're at the track betting. It's just because this is a place that most Christians probably won't go because they're embarrassed to go. There's a birthday party going on right next to us with all some hipsters who looked really cool and hip. And then there was, there was people who were in their 60s and 70s on the other side of the bleachers. There was a Hispanic family down here, one dad teaching his son how to dance. There was an African-American father with an adopted Asian daughter, and they're all sitting around us. And I'm thinking, this is a beautiful thing. These are people that, that's an unreached people group, people who go to the track. It's not somewhere, it's not in the Bible, it's not official. But <laughs> seriously, I'm just thinking about this and thinking these are people who have yet to experience the adoption that God offers them in Jesus to become part of his family. How many priests go to the track? And then I thought, where is that in Simi Valley? Where's the place Christians won't go? Because Christians don't go there. There's people that haven't yet to experience God's adoption. They haven't experienced a royal priest walking into their presence to help them understand who Jesus is. That's the identity God's given to us. So please don't give me any tips on betting, okay? I'm not looking for that. <laughs> Two more things of who we are. The next thing is that we are set apart by God. So Peter uses another phrase. He says, holy nation. Now listen, this is really important. We are set apart to be unique in the world, not set apart to be separate from the world. Hear that. We have this interpretation in the church that holy means separate so that I can be away from all those dirty sinners. That's not holy. God's holy, and yet he still hung out with sinners. What does that mean? That means that holiness does not mean separation based on morality and purity. 
it means separation for a unique purpose. That's what a holy nation is. It's a group of people that's the church that has been set apart by God, not to be distant from the world, but for a specific and unique purpose in the world to be his representation. That's who God calls us to be. That's the church. And that's what's so beautiful, beautiful about the church. Jesus calls it, and the Bible says, the church is the bride of Christ. Now, sometimes the bride has warts, okay? She's not perfect. But you know what's wonderful about the church? It is the beautiful mosaic that God has brought together to reflect his redemptive purpose in the world. That means it's filled with people who are broken, who are different, who are unique, who have different skin color and speak different languages and have different backgrounds, but it's a mosaic. What is a mosaic? A mosaic is something that is pieced together of broken pieces, many times of a mirror or a glass, and in the, in the individual piece, there isn't necessarily profound value, but when it's meshed together in a mosaic, it becomes this beautiful masterpiece that reflects the beauty of the artist. That's what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be this beautiful thing where the world looks and says, how in the world do they get along with each other? They're nothing like each other. But now they get along and they're together and there's broken people. And that's what the world needs to understand. The church is not perfect. But we try to be perfect and God never told us to try to be perfect. He wanted to save us from trying to be perfect. But if we become ourselves so the world can see within our brokenness the deep work of God's grace that creates this beautiful mosaic, that we are this holy nation that God has set apart, not because we're special and good on our own, but because God wants to demonstrate to the world what it looks like when God's grace encounters broken people. That's what Simi Valley needs. We don't need more religion. We don't need another whitewashed church to make us look good. We need authentic, real people that grapple with their faith in following Jesus, but do it in an honest way so people realize that's what it looks like. That's what the identity God has given us. He hasn't set us apart to be separate. He set us apart for his unique purpose. We are a holy nation. And then the final thing is this, is we are also held by God. So Peter uses the phrase, people belonging to God. Other translations say God's special possession. In a sense, what Peter's saying is he's saying that we are held by God, we are sustained by God. We, Jesus holds all things together, including our lives, and that means no matter what we go through, he is not rocked by anything. He's not unsure of anything, and even though our world may fall apart, he never does. He sustains us through difficult times. He holds us together. That means our identity is though I don't feel very solid, Jesus is solid. And we have to sometimes, even though we don't feel that, we have to be reminded that nothing happens outside of his will and his understanding and his knowledge in our life. Nothing. Jesus doesn't somehow wake up one morning and think, well, I didn't see that coming. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because we belong to God and he holds us in his hand and he sustains us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And you also were in, uh, included in Christ when you heard the message of, the tr of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory that are God's possession that we belong to God. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to our spouse. We don't belong to any other identity. We don't belong to our job. We belong to Jesus. That's who we belong to. 
And when we understand that, we begin to live differently. When you know that God holds you in your hand, you find yourself not being afraid to follow him. But when everything depends on you and your identity and your ability to make yourself, then you're afraid of everything because you know that if it ends in failure, it's on you. But if God holds you in his hand, even your failure can't be his failure because he'll redeem that in your life. Let me close with this. When Courtney was learning to swim, she had gotten kind of the, the understanding of swimming down. We, we were at a, my uh, brother-in-law's parents' house and we were in the backyard swimming and they had a diving board. And Courtney had never gone off a diving board before, but swimming was one thing. But one thing I love my, about my daughter is that she's pretty fearless. But a diving board, that could be a little scary when you're a little kid. And so I got her up on the diving board and I wanted her to learn how to j- at least jump off and then maybe learn how to dive, but just to get her to jump off that, the diving board. And the only way she would initially do that is if she knew I was in the deep end right where she was going to land and I could catch her. And so we did this for I don't know how long, but I'd get out in the middle of the deep end and I would tread water, <laughs> sometimes as long as I could, and I would say, Courtney, jump. And at first she was like, ah, I don't know about this, you know? And I would still be treading water and I said, it's okay, I guarantee if you jump, I'm going to catch you. And so after, I don't know how long it took, it coaxed her, and finally she jumps, and she splashes right in front of me, and I grab her right underneath, underneath her, her shoulders and her armpits, and I, she dips into the water, and I pull her right up, and I look at her, and she's just laughing hysterically. And of course, what does a child say when they enjoy something? Let's do it again. So I pushed her to the side of the pool, and she got out, and then she didn't stand there for very long the next time. She jumped right in, and then she got out and did it again, and did it again, and did it again. Why did she do that? Because she knew Dad was in the deep end, and every time she jumped, I was going to catch her, and eventually, I didn't have to be in the deep end anymore. I think some of us today need to be reminded, you feel like you're in the deep end, but God lives in the deep He's present in your life. He may not feel that way, but he's given you an identity, and he says, you belong to me. You've been bought with the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, and nothing, nothing hell wants to do, nothing the world tries to do can ever take you from me because you belong to me. Let me close with this. In fact, worship team can come and join me. We're gonna sing one last song together. Why is our identity found in Jesus? Why is this so important for us to get this one down? Because of the last part of the verse, in verse 9, that Peter says this. If you know who you are, and you live in the identity Jesus has given you, then this is the outcome, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. When you and I embrace our identity, you become the demonstration of what it looks like to go from dark to light. What it looks like to go from broken to wholeness. When you embrace that identity, you become a demonstration to people around you of who they are supposed to be because you finally figured out who you're supposed to be. God loves you enough to redeem you and reconcile you and save you, but he loves you enough that he wants to work through you to reach other people because he loves them just like you. We need to remember who we are. In fact, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. and I want to, if, if you, in describing what I've described today, there's a couple points of, I think, response in us. In fact, we're going to worship in a moment. And I've, I mentioned last week, I don't know which service, but please, 
don't, don't plan. The, the, when we do worship on the backside of the message, it's not transition time. It's time to seal what God is saying to us. And so we're just going to be here for another five, six, seven minutes. So don't, don't head for the doors, but engage in worship. But this is what I want us to do in response. As we sing, I want you to know if you are experiencing and you know if you would be honest with yourself, you've been going through an identity crisis. You have been wondering who you are. Maybe you've been striving and grabbing at things to try to figure out who you are. But every time you do this, you realize every identity that you have put on yourself doesn't ring true with who you really are. And so you find yourself in a place of insecurity and fear and confusion. And today, God wants clarity to come to your mind that he has chosen you. He chose you, not because you did something to earn it, but because he loves you. He's chosen you. He's chosen you to be in his family and to be a part of the journey that he has for all the world to not only experience what it is to be a part of his family, to be a, a joint heir with Jesus, but he's chosen you because there's other people who have yet to be adopted in his family. And he says to you, you have friends, you have relationships, you have people that need to know me. And so he gives you value by choosing you and then gives you purpose by sending you. But if you're here today and, and you know in your life you've never experienced that true identity of who Jesus has purchased you to be, you've never fully embraced his death, which we will celebrate as we come towards Easter, and then his resurrection, which was Easter Sunday, that he laid his life down for you specifically because he loved you so much. He wanted to take the weight of your failure and your brokenness and your bad decisions and your false identities and your insecurities, and he took that on himself. And what he did in that is he invites you to die with him to the old way of your life and then rise with him to the new identity he wants to give you. If that's what you desire today, I'm gonna ask you that right now you respond to that and say, God, that's what I want. I want that identity. I wanna turn my life over to you. And then when this service concludes, I'm gonna ask you that you either talk to the person who brought you here or you come and talk to me and say, yeah, I, I want that identity. Don't leave without talking to somebody because it's so important to articulate what you know is going on inside of you, what God is speaking to you. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you would in us right now, you would solidify the identity that you've given us and then as we live our lives out this week, we would live in the fullness of who you say that we are. Not our family, not our rivals, not our culture but who you have purchased us to be. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.